0: Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. You may have heard me talk on this show before about the valley of the shadow of debt. That's right. Most young people, they get to the edge of a precipice. They see across the other side, opportunity. They see, they're hearing all the time about the amazing things being done, businesses being started, apps being built, software, hardware, you name it. There's opportunity everywhere and businesses are hungry. They see it, but they're looking over a canyon. They're looking across college chasm. They look down to the bottom of that chasm and there's all these colleges and university and they're supposed to go way down there into the muck, into the valley of the shadow of debt and get stuck for five plus years on average and walk away with an average of $37,000 in debt. Oh, and not only that, but 62% of graduates are either unemployed or working in jobs that didn't require a degree anyway. So after five years and $37,000 of debt that you can never get rid of, you're working in a job That you could have gotten without it something's not right skip the valley of the shadow of debt praxis builds a bridge directly to those opportunities right now today and if you're already in that valley don't worry we can help you too we can throw you a lifeline we can pull you up right now if you already graduated college don't think about grad school until you've gotten into the real world if you're a couple years in and you're bored Don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy and think that because you've wasted some time and money, you've got to waste more. Get out now, get into an amazing career at an amazing startup, learn more about yourself and the world than you ever could down in that valley. Praxis is the bridge to get you from where you are to a life that you love. Our mission, our why, the reason we exist is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. And we can do it better, faster, cheaper than anything else. DiscoverPraxis.com. Check it out today.
1: This week on the Isaac Morehouse podcast, a conversation with Connor Jeffers. Connor is the director of revenue operations at one of the world's fastest growing digital media companies, Ghost Media. At the end of 2015, Dose completed a $25 million funding round, and each month, more than 50 million people visit their sites, Dose.com and OMGfacts.com. At a young age, Connor has already built a wealth of skill and experience from working with startups. And Connor is so engaging that before the interview even started, he was sharing stories way too cool to cut out. So we'll join Isaac and Connor from the moment they hopped on Skype and learn how to succeed at a startup.
0: Okay. Can you hear me? Okay.
2: I can. Do I Good. sound all right? I'm not on a on a fancy microphone. I was just talking with Derek about how if we're gonna do some podcast stuff, we gotta buy fancy microphones.
0: Yeah, you know it's um, it's funny. No, you you sound fine. And it's usually I feel like the sound quality for guests is less important. There's almost like a there's almost like an authenticity quality that <laughs> like you know, the works it sounds to the radio. Don't, and yeah, totally. you know, how, like they'll do commercials sometimes where. When it when someone's like supposed to be giving you like a secret on a good deal, like mm-hmm. hey, guess what? You know we've we've got too much inventory right now. You notice they'll do commercials where they'll have one of the people sound like they're calling in on a phone, which is just ridiculous because it's pre-recorded anyway.
2: <laughs> there's <laughs> no way. Yeah, there's totally. some
0: psychological thing that like when you hear someone with a slightly worse quality uh, microphone or connection, you think it's an expert that's being dialed in from far Ooh. away. You know.
2: It's, it's amazing. So there's actually, um, like in our, we've been, I've been spending the vast majority of my time recently going through our, uh, our sales deck. Um, and we actually have a slide in our sales deck that talks about something that, um, there's like professional people who do this and it's called graining and it's guys who like work at Facebook and, they're assigned to huge accounts, right? Like Kellogg. And they, what they do is graining and they make the resolution and the quality of the branded content that like they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to a creative agency to develop and they like make it worse and like make it shakier. So Wait, like-
0: Can we include this? What we're seeing I right sure now in the this. podcast? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> we're going to include this part. This is really interesting. Yeah, it's,
2: it's amazing. So there's guys and they're like, they're like, they grain things and like their job is to take super expensive, really complicated creative and make it look like like some 22 year old, like shot it with their cell phone.
0: That is amazing.
2: Yeah. It's and, amazing. <laughs> you know, like,
0: part part of the, the, I wonder how much of it is temporary. So the psychology of it, I'm thinking of the, at least with the audio quality thing, the, I think the reason we sort of associate, I'm guessing here, but hearing someone that sounds like they're on a phone connection, that's not as clear. We associate that with like an outside expert because there was a time where technologically that was the only way to get somebody from flying. Yeah, And yeah. so it's like maybe like a remnant of the past or something. I don't know. I wonder if that will go away over time. Who knows?
2: Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you can now like have, uh, you know, a video chat with somebody in a different country who's on Wi-Fi and not connected to anything. And you can do it on like a cell phone. So, so, so. it's <laughs> almost
0: like to, to get a little bit even more abstract and philosophical. <laughs> Before we it. jump into the topic of the actual... Yeah. So this makes me think about the more technology increases options the more the previous like whatever was used as the previous indicator of status mm-hmm. no longer matters so take video games for example when they were technologically limited by graphics the status of what's the best game was the game with the most realistic graphics now right. that we're in an age where like almost any amount of realism is graphically possible that's no longer what matters. My kid, he, he loves Minecraft and Roblox and all these weird 8-bit pixelated – like he doesn't care about graphics. That's just one of – it's like a stylistic choice.
2: And I, think that, I think that that's a component. The other component that I think is there is the shift of the audience, right? So it goes from people who like not only do they enjoy the game because it's entertaining, but like – and like original games just aren't that – they're, they're nowhere as entertaining as modern games. And I think like the curve is like you, you enjoy it being entertaining, but you're also like a nerd about the computer aspect of it. And you like want, like you're like, Oh, these graphics are really cool. And now they're so, maybe it's just like the, the shift is there. They become so entertaining that like, you don't really care anymore.
0: That's interesting. I have wondered so many times, actually, even, even with like culture, my wife and I were watching stranger things, uh, the Netflix series. Yep. And which has this absolutely amazing, eighties aesthetic and they do like such a good job of capturing. And we were talking about how, if you just think about like the, the trends in the eighties stylistically music design as a whole, it was like a pretty, pretty awful decade, but there was so, (laughs) but there was a lot like whatever the 20% of really cool design and aesthetic elements now, because digital just opens up our access to we can be more free from the trends of our current time a little bit more than ever, and draw from everything. And so you can like recreate the '80s only using the best parts of it, you know, and make it look so much nicer and better. Yeah,
2: yeah, I I, I would agree with that. And I think like, I think it's really amazing. I think that's like sort of the the contribution towards like just general glorification of the past, right? It's like, it's way easier to be like, wow, but look at all this cool stuff. And you're like, that's because we aren't showing you like any of the horrible <laughs> things. Like you just aren't seeing them. Like,
0: <laughs> Oh man. All right. So Connor, th- this was a fun, uh, I knew that if we just got on and did a podcast,
2: it'd be a great time. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a great
0: time. So Connor Jeffers is my guest today. I guess a, an introduction is now in order. And Connor, what we kind of want to talk about today is how to succeed at a startup. We're in a time where there's so much opportunity in startups, um, and we'll talk about what we mean by that, but to succeed in a startup environment is very different than the rules of the game to succeed in sort of a typical corporate job, or even if you just want to be sort of self-employed or even the typical small business. Um, Those are very different in some ways there's things that are the same, but so I want to specifically talk today about startups and sort of, especially early on, um, how to get in, how to succeed, all that kind of stuff. Sound yeah, good? Absolutely. So give us first your last three, I mean, cause you're really young, but you've already had like three really cool startup related yeah. work experiences in a row. So, so give us a quick rundown of, of those experiences and what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first one was I started as an uh, intern at an education technology company um, called Top Hat, which is based out of Toronto, and it was um, selling classroom engagement technology. Um, and I started as an intern. So they opened an office in Chicago, um, and they hired like the top 10 reps from Groupon, because that was right when Groupon was like uh, six months away from their IPO. So it was a lot of the guys who were there at the very early stages of um, and so they brought all these guys in. I had no idea that I was learning from like really, really good salespeople at the time. Like in retrospect, it was like a pretty incredible uh, group of people to, <laughs> to sort of tutelage under. Um, and so I was um, at Top Hat and then sort of scaled with that company for two years. Um, ended up doing tons of different stuff. Uh, ran a small little inside sales team for a while. Ended up moving to Um, Toronto to work in marketing, Uh, ended up running marketing for a little while with um, the chief product officer who was on maternity leave. Um, So I was like going to her house a couple days a week uh, and then like coming back to the office and like trying to rein in this marketing department. Um, (laughs) And then ended up staying at the company uh, until it hit probably like 120 some people and um, I think 10 to 15 million in in annual revenue. Um, And so things were super, super awesome there. Um, I came back to Chicago, uh, to finish school, um, at the behest of my mother. Uh, and when I finished school, um, it it came up that I actually had tons of opportunity that I didn't know about because my experience at Top Hat had, uh, created a bunch of value, um, uh, on me and, and, my, my labor, um, which I didn't really know until all of a sudden I started getting requests to meet people and founders in Chicago were like, Hey, like you were there in the beginning. Can you tell us how you guys did this? Um, and I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Um, uh, started shopping around a little bit, ended up working, um, at a VC slash incubator type company, um, for the last year helping, um, all of those businesses. So that we started internally, um, four different companies. And then, cause it was like a, a studio type model and then, um, worked on the contract side with a bunch of different companies. So I ended up helping about 15 startups, um, over the course of the year, sort of get up off the ground and build a lot of their sales and marketing infrastructure and sort of figure out, um, how do we get revenue in the door? And then, um, how do we make sure that we can continue to sort of grow, uh, operationally? And so I did that. And then my new role, um, that I've been in for, about two and a half months now, um, is the Director of Revenue Operations at Dose. Um, So we just raised $25 from Tribune Media. uh, And we are a new media company that um, we're sort of distributed across all of the social platforms um, and working to sort of build a brand studio and and do some native advertising and create awesome content that people sort of distribute and share across the social web. Um, And that's sort of what I'm working on right now.
0: So let me ask you about Dose just a little bit, yeah.
2: Because absolutely.
0: I, I was actually just talking to, uh, actually, well, who you mentioned before, our marketing director, Derek yep. McGill. That is such a tough industry for a, for a new company to be a new entrant in the online media space. Oh yeah what is kind of the, like, how do you, I, I'm just thinking from an investor standpoint, why would you invest 25 million in one more company? That's yeah. like, we're going to get people to come read our articles and click on our stuff more than the next guy. What's the, what's the innovation that makes dose, um, attractive to, to be able to attract that kind of investment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th- our, our biggest sort of component, um, is a uh, testing and optimization and then, and then distribution at scale. So, and, um, you know, re- hearkening back, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, when he talks about, you know, what's a secret that you know that um, no one else knows? And the secret that we know um, is that Facebook does not value paid content in the same way as every other form of media. Um, and we believe that the way that Facebook values it will, will sort of be the future. Um, so the, the way that it works is back in the day, if you wanted to buy um, a Super Bowl ad, a Super Bowl ad is five million dollars, and it doesn't matter if I have a black and white, grainy video that like mumbles at you, and you have no idea what's going on, and it's like a horrible experience, or if I spend millions and millions of dollars and create this like incredibly entertaining like you know thing with puppies, and for, at some of the bottom I'm like, oh by the way, like you should buy a car. Um, like it doesn't matter which one I do, I still pay five million dollars for that spot. Um Facebook is totally different. So the way that Facebook um charges is you pay on Facebook based on uh how many people actually want to interact with and engage and want to see your content. So the better content you create, the lower your cost. So this um,
0: brings the this brings the cost of testing and the and yes. the cost of failure way down so you Correct. can be okay.
2: So, so what we do is we just do way more testing and optimization than anybody else does. Um, so we started doing this with just doing headline and thumbnail combinations. So we'll have an article um, that we're going to run and increasingly video. We just opened a huge video team in L.A. We have like an Emmy award winning director of video who just came on um, really excited about all that kind of stuff. But increasingly what we do is we just test tons of headline and thumbnail combinations. Um, so we'll have one article and the article, um, you know, back when we were doing lots of lots of lists, which is what Facebook used to like. And now Facebook uh, just today published an article about how um, they're sort of pu- penalizing anything that's listy. Um, sort of the stuff that, that Buzzfeed got on the map for <laughs> and arguably what we've been doing for a while as well. Um, and they're moving a lot more towards video. Um, and so, What we would do is basically we'd have one article and that article could be like, you know, 20 cats who uh, don't want to have anything to do with your nonsense. Right. And we might test um, 40 different headline and thumbnail combinations where we might have the title be, you know, um, 20 cats that are cuter than yours, 20 cats that are worse than your best friends, um, this kind of stuff. And then we'll actually cycle tons of different images through. Um, And what that does is we can sort of start at like a eight, eight cent CPM. Um, which is like a cost per impression for anyone that's not in the advertising world. It's how much it costs for you to show your piece of content to one person on Facebook. Um, And we can go from like eight cents to like fractions of a cent towards the end of the optimization process, Um, which essentially is just like, we can drive down the total cost of producing a piece of content um, by 400%. Right. So, at least. Um, so what that lets us do is have really, really amazing content that gets shared out. We've been doing it with our own content for a while. Um, and now with the money that we raised, because they said, wow, you guys are really good at making engaging social content. Um, and we're now moving to helping brands do that. Um, similarly ah. to how a lot of the, the major publishers and the other big secret that's happening is publishers and agencies are smashing into one big thing. So Buzzfeed has a brand studio. The New York times has a brand studio. Elite Daily has a brand studio um so we're sort of launching our brand studio um to work with these brands and sort of take our methodology and our technology of rapid optimization um and sort of deploy it out for for engaging content for brands so that they can get the same sort of um That's cost
0: really savings. fascinating. It's almost like the consumer facing sort of you know, entertainment news media part is a it's like an R D experiment to see
2: Absolutely. what works to yes. get
0: ideas in front yep. of eyeballs.
2: So it's weird. I mean, I have conversations with our CEO all the time and it's just sort of like, look, man, half of my business is like testing and like a marketing experience expense. Like it's really bizarre. Um, so if I was going to project like the future of advertising um, in in North America and globally, I would say that uh, the major advertisers are going to get bought by the largest brands because Facebook and some of these other new medium Um, they're going to start issuing receipts. So that's the other big thing that's changing is Facebook now makes you tag the brand on your Facebook post. Um, which means that because you have to tag the brand, the brand gets to see how much you spent and it also gets to see how many impressions they got. And no longer can you, you know, charge a quarter of a million dollars to someone to develop a TV spot. And then they don't know how much you paid for the TV spot, nor do they know how many people saw it.
0: So would this Um, mean conversely that if let's say you create something that, you know, goes viral, That Facebook could also, so let's say, you know, traditionally, let's say Facebook would charge you, you know, five grand for some series of, uh, sponsored posts or something. Yep. And that's five grand, whether or not those posts go nuts and get reshared a million times or whether they don't, but now could they potentially charge you for the times other people share them as well because you're tagged in them? Kind of, kind okay.
2: of. What what they want to do instead is, um, you sort of have it have it inverse. So you you pay when people don't end up sharing them. You're, what people end up sharing them is organic because Facebook likes it when their users share stuff. Yes, it's good for them. Yep. So they don't want to charge you money when that happens. And in fact, if you say, Hey, Facebook, I'll make content that people love and will share a lot, which is sort of our business model. Um, and Facebook goes, That's amazing. Like I will show that to so many people, and I won't charge you that much money for it.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha.
2: So have
0: in, in your industry, and I know you're relatively new there, but you are obviously a quick study. Um,
2: <laughs> I try to be,
0: is there any talk about how the possibility for micro payments might change the revenue model? So I've heard people talk about, you know, take, take Bitcoin, for example. Um, because transaction costs are so low you could you could charge theoretically like a hundredth of a cent for something where that never made sense before because you have to you have to pay to process a transaction on like a credit card or something and you're not going to you're not going to do a transaction that's you know 1/100th one one of a cent it's just not worth it but so you could do more paywalled content but it's not like I need to pay 20 bucks a month to get the Wall Street Journal I could literally just have a Bitcoin account and every time I open Dose Media and read an article, it just charges me a fraction of a cent. Like, Has there been any talk about micropayments removing advertisements as the, as the primary revenue source or being a supplementary source or is that something that's just like on the fringes?
2: So I, I don't know if it's on the fringes. Um, it definitely isn't happening or, or being talked about in my world, which is different because we're not a legacy publisher, right? So we're not, um, we're actually moving entirely away from our website uh, and, and moving to just post and exist entirely on social platforms. So wow. um, the biggest one that's out there doing this right now that you may have seen is called Now This Media. Um, and if you go to nowthisnews.com, um, it literally is a page that says homepage, even the word sounds boring. Like we can bring you the news on the platforms you're already on. Um, And that's kind of where we're going as well. So we're moving entirely to the social side of things. Um, So, you know, microtransaction gated walls and all that kind of stuff. I think uh, that's another monetization arm for everyone who is going to stay with a website. Um, My projection is, uh, you know, one to two years from today, um, websites won't really be a thing anymore because like, no one goes and finds content that way anymore. It's, we're moving away from search, which is what, um, you know, Google wasn't, was there for, and we're moving more towards discovery, which is what Facebook is there for. So mm-hmm. as we sort of discover content organically on Facebook, um, like publishers drive like 80% of their traffic from Facebook. Um, which mm-hmm. means that like, if Facebook says, Hey, we're not really into sending traffic away from Facebook anymore. Um, Everyone's going to sort of have to adapt and Facebook's already doing a lot of that. they now have native articles. They have all sorts of new functionality that, that tries to keep people in, in their their world.
0: So, so in the world of marketing, there's sometimes like a little bit of a debate between those who say and these are often kind of creative design type branding. Branding is really important. Put money into branding. And then the sort of sales focused people who say, bullshit, branding, that (laughs) doesn't mean anything. That's like beautiful logos and whatever. We need things that have a call to action that are generating clicks with a measurable return on investment, et cetera, et cetera. It almost sounds like if if you go to a post website world where what you are is just Existing in whatever platforms people are using, maybe this is a move a little bit more towards increasing the value of branding again.
2: I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I think. I think. I mean. So I used to be, uh, and sort of I existed right, as this like growth hacker type of marketer. Um, and like at Top Hat, we built this whole engine that like sent out thousands and thousands of emails to people, and like automated all this stuff, and then like automated uh, bookings with sales reps. And I was like always focused on down to the dollar and now it's weird because you know we have conversations with brands like uh kellogg that say like we want people to feel positively about cereal (laughs) Uh, which is like totally weird for me um, but I think, I mean, I think it just changes at that kind of budgeting, right? So a startup needs dollars and you're trying to get money in the door, however you can. And like, if you talk to, you know, a startup, you're like, oh, what you really need to do is spend like a hundred thousand dollars to like hire a creative agency to like make you an amazing brand. Um, you're going to be like, I'm not doing that, obviously, like I'm doing anything else. Um, and I think it just like the, the economies change when you're Kellogg and you're talking about hundred, you know, multi-billion dollar international conglomerate. Um, and I I think the economy changes where, you know, $100,000 for you to write off so that someone feels more positively about your brand and maybe buys it in a store, um, is worth it. Uh, some of the crazier things I've read is I'm a huge home automation, uh, type of person and, so I have like the Amazon Echo and all this other stuff. And I was reading this amazing article talking about how much your brand's going to have to pay to be, when I tell Echo, can you order me some more hot sauce? Which hot sauce is it by default yeah. add to my cart and send me?
0: Okay, so so I've got the Echo as well. Alexa is a good friend of our family. <laughs> yep,
2: <there>. yep. Um, <laughs>
0: except we don't have like, any kind of smart home at all. So oh really, God, Alexa dude, pretty much plays music and you yeah, know, maybe gives me the weather and sports or uh, you know whatever. I'll I'll put in some skill to let her tell a yo mama joke or something. <laughs> uh, what what is it like? You so is your whole house a small home? House.
2: Yeah, the whole house.
0: So so like okay, you get home from work. What do so you I get do? home
2: from work? Um, and I have a trigger set up with if this then that that when my phone connects to the home Wi-Fi. It zaps my AnyMote, which is an infrared uh, connected device. It turns on my speakers and then it turns on my last played Spotify playlist. So, as soon as I walk in the door, there's like music playing. And then I have it set up so if it's after dark um, and that all those things, all those series of events happen, that the lights turn on automatically.
0: The lights um, dim and the music changes.
2: Yeah, all that kind (laughs) of stuff. Um, And I have it so, like, when I get up in the morning, Um, my lights automatically sort of start to rise and, and come up and I've actually moved myself entirely away from an alarm. Um, I was really interested in doing it with my blinds, but the blind things are like to, to do the blinds is like a thousand dollar affair. It's ridiculous. Well, so
0: I mean, even just normal, like motor normal fashion yeah. blinds are like, a <laughs> it's, it's one of the weirdest uh, blinds and razor blades. I've never understood. Someone's got to go and
2: do like the Lisa version and or the dollar shave club or whatever. Place. Yes. I mean, blinds, dollar right? blinds like, club. Dollar blinds club. Yeah. <laughs> you cycle them out or something. I'll you know, give that business idea. It's free. Anyone can have it.
0: Wow. You are a generous guy. (laughs) So, so, um, let's talk a little bit about startups and I'm, I'm defining it essentially how, um, Paul Graham defines a startup in a, in one of his essays. I don't even remember the title, but basically where the, the, the thing that makes a startup, a startup is growth, a focus on like rapid, like exponential type growth, not just a small business. That's kind of, you know, a restaurant or something more or less doing the same thing every day, maybe trying to grow a little bit, not a big established company. Um, it's tends to be younger, but it's a company with a relentless focus on growth. They're attempting purposefully to grow like 10x or 100x within the span of a couple of years. So that's kind of how I'm thinking when I'm saying startup. What for starters Let's say you're just like really young and you want to, you see this wild world, you're kind of entrepreneurial, but you don't have any startup ideas yourself. You just, you want to be a part of it. How do you get noticed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's actually like not that hard, um, in my opinion. And the reason that I think that that's true, um, is startups by nature want to hire tons of people and like just need quality people and they need quality people more so, than large companies for two reasons. Um, one is they can't afford to not have quality people because you know, they're, they're tight on actual resources. Um, and the second is they don't actually know what they're doing. They don't have a process. They don't have a repeatable business model yet. So like you can't hire someone and be like, Oh, okay. Like it's okay. I mean, you know, you take, um, you know, giant companies that, that man, you know, primarily retail or, or, you know, quick service restaurants and they'll hire anybody because, they can train people and they have a process and, you know, they can, they can say, I know the proven way to take someone who's never worked at a Chipotle before and in X amount of time, turn them into someone that can like, uh, you know, push out 15 burritos a minute. Right. And a startup can't do that. So I I think by the nature of the way startups are, they're hungry for talent. So that means two things. So one is if you, um, are trying to get in and and talk to someone in a startup, um, odds are they're going to take your meeting. Um, And people at startups are also, I think, uh, at least I am, and I would imagine most people who are, you know, sort of in startups and enjoy them, um, usually very passionate and driven about what they're doing and and think that what they're working on is really interesting because it's pretty hard to justify, like not going and taking, you know, a six figure job somewhere that's a lot cushier and, you know, more of a nine to five and with benefits and whatever, um, when you're not at least like no like I need to figure out this problem it's so interesting to me and so if you email I think anyone any startup and you're like hey I think what you guys are doing is really interesting and I would love it to learn more about how you do x or y and could we maybe get coffee next week and I, I would find it shocking if you don't at least get some Facetime. and you might get like canceled on and rescheduled with a few times but you'll usually get Facetime for sure
0: That's one uh, an analogy that I find really useful is sort of a dating analogy. And I think a lot of people approach trying to get a job or getting a um, getting the attention of a potential employer, like if if it were to be uh, compared to a date, it would be like going on a date with someone and saying, hey, let me give you the five reasons why you should continue to date me and how like that's really off putting compared to. Showing interest in them like people want they're passionate about this company They're pouring their life into it They want to know not just that you would like a place to work, but that you are uniquely excited about them So hey, let me I have put in a lot of time. I have paid attention I have observed what you're doing and I want to tell you all the things that make me excited about you you know, if you're on a date and you're like, here are the three reasons I think you are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's so much more likely to have someone say, wow, really? Well, let's go on another date. I like this. You know, like people are human when, when, you, when you want their attention and you just say, Hey, I'm really smart. I'm talented, whatever you should talk to me. That's, that's not very like intriguing versus, Oh my gosh, you are amazing. Your company is so exciting. I want to be a part of it. You know? Okay. Now you're talking about me. I like this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know? absolutely. So like two, I mean, two, just like quick examples of how, how true that is. one, you, we started this conversation of like, tell us what Dose is doing. And I could have been like, oh, like we're a social optimization company and then like moved on. And instead of, I was like, oh, my God, let me tell you all about it. Like there's this secret and we know about it and it's so cool. Um, and I, like as a corollary, I mean, I had um, drinks with a 30 under 30 founder here in Chicago yesterday. And as someone I didn't know, I wasn't connected with at all. Um, and I literally just like emailed the guy and I was like, Hey, I think what you guys are doing is really, really interesting. I love how you're doing this. And I'm wondering how you guys are planning on dealing with, you know, this problem that I foresee as a layman coming up in your industry. And for him, it wasn't even like, Oh, this is so insightful. I didn't think about that problem. He was like, Oh my God, like, let me tell you how we're going to solve this. (laughs) Um, And and that was exactly like, and it was great. Like I just chatted with the guy and I was like, Oh, this is so cool. I really enjoyed this conversation. (laughs) that
0: was it. (laughs) Any, any of those little, like, if you just take a minute to think about the business someone's doing and think of like, I wonder how they solve this problem. Chances are they love to talk about it. Totally. I used to to do fundraising and I'd find out, you know, from the people I was meeting with, they had all these different businesses that they had started and very successful people. And if somebody is in, let's say plastics or something, I would think for a minute and I'd be like, so, you know, what happens if you have a client that has a major order, like, you know, making lids for McDonald's, and then all of a sudden they change and all your machinery is geared towards producing their thing. Like, is that a huge loss? What do you do? And the guy's just like, oh my gosh, this is exciting. Like no <laughs> yeah, one asked yeah, exactly. he just launches into it. And it was, it was amazing. Okay. So, so you just say just reaching out directly, emailing people, showing an interest in them. And it's not that hard to get attention.
2: I don't think it's that hard to get attention. Um, the other thing, I mean, I, this was one of the first things I remember that I saw, saw Derek post and uh, was immediately like, oh my God, that's totally it. Um, and it comes back to the second part of a startup. So the first part is they're hungry for people and they're really interested in what they're doing and they want to tell you about it. The second is, um, they like really don't know what they're doing and want help. And so if you contact literally anyone in a startup and you're like, Hey, I noticed that you guys aren't running Facebook ads and I was curious why not. And I've run a bunch of Facebook ads and I think you could get success by doing X, Y, and Z. Yep. And any like if I'm if I'm a marketing person and I'm like oh my god I've always wanted to run Facebook ads. I don't really have the expertise or the time like uh, at the very least I want to be like hey like that's really interesting why do you think I should do that and like if you make a compelling case I'm intrigued.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So yeah that's uh, Derek likes to talk about make a make a value proposition. Yeah. uh, Not just a, you know, here's my resume. Um, okay. So let's say you get in the door as you did with your, your first place. And this was, you sort of took a break from school. You're working at this startup. How do you make an early impression? You come in, you're just some kid, some intern or some, you know, whatever. (laughs) And you got a lot of people, they're all running around like chickens with their head cut off. It's a busy environment. How do you make an impression that makes you stand out and, and really sort of outlast the other people that just come and go?
2: Yeah, so um, I think that there's there's sort of two ways. Um, one is work harder than other people, um, and and you know it's one of those things. I, I have a a friend who has uh, his father has an adage that he likes to say all the time, which is like if you co- show up to work every day and you actually work from nine to five. You'll, you're already in the 90th percentile, <laughs> yes. um, which is which I think is like so true. And I even look at now. I was even like I was sort of having like a moment of like I need to like get my ass in gear and work harder because the other day I was sort of like ah, I don't know I'm gonna like work from home tomorrow and I was like what the hell am I doing? Like <laughs> there's no way I would have done this two years ago. Like and like that's not cool. But like I, what I found it top out immediately. So I came in um, as this, this intern, I think I was 19. Um, yeah, I was 19 and, uh, I had a lot to prove. And so what that meant was I just worked my ass off uh, and I felt like I had to prove it. And so by contrast, you know, I was also in the room with, um, 22 year olds who had just graduated college and were in doing the same thing that I was. And they were just like, ah, this job kind of sucks. Like, why don't I have a better gig? And Mm -hmm. they just weren't that engaged. And I was like, I want to prove that I'm awesome. Um,
0: so not being too good for, Totally. Rough, crappy tasks.
2: Oh, that's, I mean, in startups, man, like the number, I mean, I had, I, you know, as our CFO the other day. was like, dude, you have to get dirty. Like, you, like sometimes like stuff has to get done and there's no one to go do them. And if you're the guy who does that stuff, people will be like, oh, this is great. Like, and it, like immediately you get this reputation for you're the guy who can like do the stuff. Like, yes. And whatever the stuff is, right? Like they're like, Oh, Hey, I have to do this thing. It's not very glamorous and it's not great. And all of a sudden you've become someone that people know about and know adds value. And like, that's all you're really looking for. I think in your first 30,
0: I, I, 90 when I was, uh, f- I think I was 14, 13 or 14, I worked at a golf course and my aunt was actually the, like the ran the golf course. Yeah. It's a very small one. And I, you know, would run the cash register, do just all sorts of random stuff. And I was cleaning the bathrooms and she was very particular. She would get like a paper clip and unfold it to scrape around the, (laughs) you know, and she would come in and correct my work all the time. And I was like, I was like, and Heidi, this is just, this is such horrible work. I've been cleaning the bathroom like for hours, you know? And she goes, you think it's horrible work? She goes, who do you think does it if you're not here? She goes, I'm a golf pro and I run this course and if you're not here, I clean the bathroom (laughs) and then I just sort of realized like, Oh, (laughs) like somebody has got to do it. The only reason I'm valuable to her is because I free her up to do something more valuable that I'm unable to do at this point, you know?
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think that that's one of the biggest ones is, is do value. Don't be afraid of like getting your hands dirty. Um, and the other thing, I, I mean, I think that is incredibly valuable is um, don't necessarily ask permission. Um, I think so. There's two ways to go about this. So, so I actually, I, I really don't like um, the, you know, don't ask permission, just do stuff because I've had people on my team before and they're doing something and I'm like, hey, actually, that's really cool, but you know, we're actually doing this other stuff and it's not that that's not a great thing, but it's that it doesn't necessarily tie in directly to what we're doing. Um, and and could have been done better if we had you know tied it in or whatever. Um, and I think the more effective you know, sort of approaches identify places where value could be created, um, suggest like, Hey, I think it would be really cool if insert whatever, you know, value you think can be provided. And you'll immediately get somebody who's like, Oh yeah, I think that that's a great idea, but here's why we're not doing it. You're like, cool. Can I do it? And they're like, sure. (laughs) Like, why not? Um, how, how frequently do people ask to take on new stuff? You know, um, and I think that that was one of the first things that I'm remembering that I did at Top Hat as well. Is, um, so we had these, these Groupon salespeople, um, and they were selling large deal sizes. Uh, and so anything that was under – so we build on a student like $20 per student that was in a class. And so anything that was more, less than 50 students, these guys didn't want to take, right? And not because they were better than it but because, um, it was a waste of their time. Just like the they, they, right. Yeah. The math, like they, they're better off talking to 200 student classes and 50 student classes. So all of these 50 student classes, we had like professors who were like, I'm really interested in your platform. I'd love to talk to a salesperson. And they'd get an email that's like, uh, I mean, I don't think it said like you're not important enough for us, but like, that's pretty much what the gist was. Right. Um, and so we not many of them ended up converting because, you know, if you're like, hey, I'm really interested in your product, how does it work? And, I, I, you know, you get an email back that's like, here's like a <laughs> article, and you're like, all right, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't need to do this at all. Um, and so I asked the sales manager, I was like, hey, I've been, like, booking meetings and doing all this kind of stuff, um, and I'm noticing that we have these 50 student classes that nobody's running. Um, can I have and run – Those demos and book those meetings, and in his mind, he's like, "Here's a risk-free activity. Like, if I go and ruin this, it just doesn't matter, right? It was revenue that wasn't coming in anyway. And if I end up doing really well, it's icing on the cake for him and his team, right? Like, it's not that much money for him. If I end up, you know, crushing it and close ten of them, we're talking like maybe an extra five thousand dollars towards his towards his quota, which doesn't make a huge impact, but like is is cool. Um, And so." I, I just started doing those and started doing well at them and then ended up, you know, moving up and doing a lot more stuff just by, you know, sort of identifying here's a place where some value can be created and, um, you know, proactively trying to create it.
0: Uh, converting a we question into an I solution is is kind of I think what you're talking about when, when, when someone says, hey, have we ever tried X? And somebody in the company says, oh, well, one time we did, but oh, we don't really, it's not really a priority. The typical thing is the person says, hmm, well, you know, maybe we should, but the minute you can say, have we ever tried X and then convert that into, can I go ahead and do this then? Man, that's just such a huge, you know, rather than just kind of proposing, maybe we should consider this. Who is we? Like there's no we that can act. It's (laughs) going to be some individual person, you know? Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about sales because I know when you started at Top Hat, you were doing basically like hundreds of cold calls. 300 cold calls a day. So I know a lot of young people who want to be where you are right now. You're doing amazing stuff at a cool company, Dose Media. You, you obviously you know, know your stuff, have a lot of influence. But it was only a few years ago – when you were making 300 cold calls a day. So I know a lot of people, young people are like, I wanna do cool stuff, I wanna be like Connor. Oh my God, cold call sales? No way, I'm not gonna go take some crappy job where I read a script all day on the phone. How do you mentally succeed at that and not see it as like a dead end, but say, hey, I can do this for as long as I need to do it to succeed? Like how do you how do you overcome that distaste that most people have for cold call sales?
2: Yeah, so what I did, um, I made a spreadsheet And in this spreadsheet, I did like, okay, I'm going to have a bunch of different like openers and pitches and, uh, I'm going to have different tones and all this kind of stuff. And then I just kept track of like what was working and what wasn't. Um, and and
0: you were, you were already ready for dose media, all that (laughs) testing.
2: (laughs) I'm an optimization guy. Uh, it's just kind of, I'm, I'm an automation and optimization nerd, right? Like I, 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 spent a weekend making my house so that the lights automatically turned on when I came home because I found it so onerous that I had to like flip a light switch. Right. So that's just like where I'm at. But, um, I, I did that. And honestly, I don't think I improved my performance by that much, but it kept it engaging. Um, and you know, it made it something to where like, I at least had something to do and I didn't feel like it was, uh, useless. And then the other thing is, I mean, I think, um, it's all about like identifying, you know, is this like, I think, it's really difficult for anyone to stay motivated doing something that they don't think creates any value. Right. And I think that that's sort of like the typical intern type situation. of you're like, Oh, I don't really have anything to do for you. So why don't you go like sort those files over there that I, I don't like, and I, also I don't really care if they're sorted, but like it's something for you to do and no one wants to do that. And like, it's cause it doesn't add value. But like the reality is when you're making a ton of calls and you're booking meetings and revenues coming from it, like you are creating value. There's a reason that people have you doing that. And keeping track of and and managing sort of like, uh, so something I did really early on and I I knew my numbers so that when I went and decided, Hey, I want to be on the marketing side, I could say, because I've booked this many meetings, which came into this much revenue, which ended up coming to this much like actual like margin for the business. And I know that, and I can identify the value that I've created. Um, I also, I'm a firm believer that with the right sort of incentives and games and metrics and other stuff that. Uh, Inside sales can be really fun. So I promise if anyone ever, if I ever want you to come to inside sales, you'll have a good time. Um, But but I do think that there are ways to make it good. But I do think keeping yourself motivated um, and coming up with uh, games and optimization strategies and and things like that, uh, and also understanding that you're getting an experience that I think is irreplicable, which is that you get FaceTime with customers and you get to talk to customers and you get to understand them. Um, and I think that that's insanely powerful.
0: Get the gamification. That's a really powerful way to get value out of those, those sort yeah. of sometimes monotonous tasks and just tracking your own results, playing, you know, playing little games, just if nothing else, even if it doesn't improve you just to keep yourself engaged. That's a, that's right. a great insight. Um, so what, okay, so you, so you've moved from uh, top hat to, um, rocket, uh, and now to dose in a, in a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. How do you go about, like, when do you know it's time to move on, whether internally to a different role or to a totally different company? And when it is time to, to move up or to move out, how do you make that transition without burning bridges?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think that that is not easy. <laughs> I think it's like a nuanced <laughs> thing to do. Uh, and I, I definitely don't think I'm the best at it. Um,
0: well, and- especially in a startup too, where everybody everybody feels like they're in the trenches together, pouring their soul into something. And it's like always comes as a shock when somebody's yeah. leaving.
2: Yeah. So I think, um, I, so I'll start with the first question, right? Which is like, how do you know when it's time to move on? Um, so something that, that I do really proactively is, I try to have at least one call or coffee or lunch with someone in the startup community um, a week. Um, and I, I don't do that as like I'm constantly looking for a job. I do that to know what's going on, um, to get face time with people, but also to understand uh, where the market's going and, and sort of the market value that I have and what I can bring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the flip side of it is um, always optimize, at least in the beginning. Like I, I think until you are – Um, until you're either a VP at a B or C series stage company, which is, I mean, that's like you're accountable for sales or for marketing or for product. And you're, you have a team and you're trying to get shit done and you're organizing everything like that's, that's a role at which you should no longer be optimizing for learning. You need to optimize for like output, um, and trying to find, you know, how you can make the most leverage happen. Or if you're running your own business, I think at any other stage in your career, you should always be optimizing for how, how much can I learn? And I think then the really easy, um, test for, is it time to move on is, um, am I learning stuff every day? Am I actually gaining new knowledge and new skills or am I starting to get to the point where, um, I feel like I've extracted a lot of the value. And I think that that's a really difficult thing to do just like as a person. I mean, I, I, I hate exercise, but I think it's like a solid comparison of like, it's really difficult once you're like comfortable lifting like 10 pound weights to all of a sudden like grab 15s and you're like, Oh man, like that was really good. Like that was easy, but like you'll never get there otherwise. Um, and I think that that you need to sort of, look up and say, when am I learning something new? And you can do that internally too. I mean, you can go to a manager or go to anybody in a different team. And that's what I did at Top Hat. Is like, once I'd done the sales thing for a while, I went and said, hey, I actually feel like I understand a lot of this. I'd be really interested in sort of trying something new. Um, and the CEO said, oh, well, like we're bringing on people in marketing. Like, why don't you go over there and do stuff with them? Um, and that was good. But I think uh, it doesn't matter whether it's in or out. It's just something new. Um, and I think frequently, uh, and I think I, I sort of... Um, Startups do a bad job of this, but startups overvalue external resources over internal resources. Um, and I think a lot of the times you're gonna have more opportunity to create value at a new company than you will at your existing company. Um, just because you know, uh, for instance, I'm looking for this content marketing hire right now. We have editorial writers, we have tons of them, they're great writers. Um, I need someone that really understands you know email marketing and how to you know create a blog that's engaging and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I could grab one of them, but I really need someone to, I don't have the time to sort of train and onboard. So I end up overvaluing an external resource over an internal
0: resource. It, it's interesting. All of the, I would say almost all the best decisions that I've made personally have been ones that almost surprised people because it was right when I got really good at something sort of yeah. mastered it. And then it was like, wait, you're going to do something totally different. You just like, you just got really good and mastered this one thing. And that's like the perfect time in my mind <laughs> to yeah, sort of absolutely. go to the new challenge. And, and this is what, you know, I tell people a lot of times with school, like the people who are really good, who have mastered school, they know how to get good grades. They can do it. That's the perfect time to quit and go to a, take, take
2: on a yeah, like new just challenge. Stop. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not, you're not gaining anything new. Um, and I think, I think so that's, that's sort of the first mode like, when is it time to find a new thing is, is when you really feel like you're approaching mastery. Um, and I think, that there's a time in your career and in your life to double down on, on your mastery. Um, I am not there. I I don't, I, so I'm seeking this as like a hypothetical that I believe is true. Um, but I, I don't think that it's any time there. So that's, that's the answer to the first question. The second question is how do you go about, uh, finding the thing that you, you know, should move to next. So the way that I do this and I, uh, evangelize this to people as the best way to sort of go about identifying where you should spend your time is, figure out, um, you know, what are the skills and the things that I have now that are a combination of what I'm good at and what I don't hate doing, not necessarily enjoy, but like, here's what I'm good at and I can do. So for instance, I'm actually really, really good at inside sales. Um, It's boring. And like, I understand whenever anybody's doing it, like it's not a super engaging thing to do. So I don't go do it, even though I am very, very good at it. And so I think that you identify what are the things you're good at, and then go and look at, Um, what's out there in terms of, so AngelList is an incredible resource for this only because they list like, here's how much money and equity like these skills are actually worth. Um, But, you know, whether it's jobs or career, you know, ask around, see what people are looking for and what they're hiring for and what they want. um, And then identify the skills gap. So what are the things that that I have now? And then what are the things I need for that? Um, And then go get exposure to those things. So my example was um, for when I, I got really into sort of the solutions architecture type of stuff, um, building lots of CRMs and marketing automation systems, and what I realized was like, man, I really know the sales part and I really know the marketing part, but I don't have the technical knowledge to really execute on this. Um, so I went and found somewhere where I'd get, you know, tons of exposure to those sorts of technical uh, side of things with, you know, mentorship and development and you know people who are more knowledgeable than myself that I could draw from.
0: Are there any CRMs that don't suck?
2: Salesforce. <laughs> It it, Salesforce is Salesforce is magic. It's like, I promise anytime anyone has a Salesforce instance, like if it's not the greatest thing ever, it's because you could do a better deployment. (laughs) I love Salesforce. All right. Challenge
0: accepted. It is probably the least painful of all of them. I just, Hey man, we
2: can talk. I'll help you guys out. I love Salesforce. I'm a huge Salesforce. We might
0: need to do it. Cause I feel like, I mean like I always want a CRM to, to the interface to basically be like a spreadsheet but like the back end to have all the power that a real CRM has but like when i'm interacting with the data that i want to look at and the records that i want to go through i just want it to be like a spreadsheet cuz nothing beats <laughs> a spreadsheet for ease of editing and sorting and all that stuff um so in terms of not burning any bridges yeah so i think i think it's an honest
2: conversation um so when i left top hat uh, i i mean i was i i had been a very early employee there i was close with the entire executive team Um, you know, I, I had been there and I was sort of like the OG of top hat of like, uh, like when I left, I think that aside from the founders, I was the third most senior person in the company, which is like ridiculous, but like the nature of startups. Um, so everyone that had come in, it was like, Oh, like Connor's the guy who knows how things are done here. Um, and so when I left, um, I I sort of met with the CEO and I was like, Hey, look, um, here's what I'm thinking, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm looking for. Um and he was like, Okay, well, why don't you have a conversation with, you know, the half of the executive team, these random people, and, and see if they have something that might fulfill what you're looking for, right? Um and it basically got to the point, so I mean my criteria was like, I didn't want to move back to Toronto, I wanted to stay in the US. Um I, you know, had whatever my criteria were. And I I was just very honest and and frank about what I was looking for and why what I was doing at that point in time was no longer going to work out for me. And I, you know, had very honest conversations with everyone on the team. Um, And then when I went out and looked and found a new thing, they were like, well, stay as long as you want, because, you know, we like you having you here and you provide value. Um, And when I ended up finding a new gig, I went back and I was like, hey, here's this thing that I found. And everyone was sort of really enthusiastic about it. It was like, that sounds amazing. You should definitely go do it. Um, and I still talk to, um, all the top hat execs, uh, not necessarily monthly, but probably at least quarterly. Um, I connect with every single one of them, um, and just sort of get a catch up, get their input and advice on something that I'm doing. Um, and I just think it's really, it's honesty and it's saying, uh, I'm not leaving cause I'm mad. I'm not leaving because I'm bitter. I'm, I'm really, I'm looking for something that more aligns to, to my needs and my expectations. Um, and I think people are really receptive to that. I mean, it's very rare that you have, you know, those sorts of honest type conversations.
0: Yeah, it's, it's I think maybe a little different than uh, previous generations where, you know, you got to keep it totally secret that you're yeah. even considering anything else. Like people just sort of understand now in the era of LinkedIn where everybody is, Everybody can see what else is on the market and other people yeah. can see you. They just assume that they're good employees have probably gotten offers from other places, being more open and just saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of seeing a ceiling with this current role. I'm, I'm a little, I'm looking at stuff, you know, no current plans. You might be surprised how that, that totally.
2: might be. And you might have things bad. all the time. I've, I mean, we at, 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 rocket launch and at Ronin, we used to help people out all the time. Like they would say like, I mean, I had, I remember we had an inside sales hire who was really burned out, didn't want to do it anymore. Um, didn't really have anything, and it was just like, look, I, I don't have another role for you right now. I just don't like. I like you. You're great. This is the only thing that I have right now that that I know can provide value. Um, and if you can find a way to provide equitable value, then that's great. I don't I don't know of one. Um, and she was like, okay, then I'm gonna start looking for other stuff. And I was like, great. Like I'm happy to make intros for you. I can connect you with whoever you want to talk to, and I, I'll be sorry to see you go, but. Um, I think it's just like, you can be a lot more candid and honest and, you know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm atypical in that regard, but (laughs) I I usually find that candid, honest conversations, um, especially with an employer. And a lot of people I think forget that like being an employee, uh, is it, is it, is an exchange and it's a trade and like both parties in that exchange need to be happy.
0: So two, two final questions. Uh, first, what are you reading or listening to right now?
2: Yeah. Um so I'm listening to Startup Podcasts, which I'm loving. Uh, oh, that's like, like, a I'm, b- yeah, I'm way behind the time. Yeah. <laughs> as far as Gimlet Media that's goes. Phenomenal. Um enjoying that a lot. Uh I regularly listen to um Planet Money and Freakonomics and all that kind of stuff as well. Um and then at present I am reading uh Peak, which is by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. Um it is their uh they are researchers that study the science of expertise and how people develop expertise um, and what expertise is. Um, they're pretty amazing. They like talk about how uh, you can break down like excellence in music basically down to the number of hours that someone has not just like played the violin, but has been playing the violin past their current capabilities. Um, mm. It's really, really interesting. Um, and that's kind of the, the two things I'm working my way through right now.
0: And the final question, if people want to find you, where should they go?
2: Uh, I'm pretty active on Quora, um, and anyone can sort of message me there. I'm working on right now being a lot more active on Medium um, as well and trying to at least put out something once every week or two.
0: Connor Jeffers, go to Quora hopefully medium. Connor, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can do uh, we can test like 40 different titles for this episode.
2: I, I it. like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you'll have to distribute them out. We can get them paid. We'll drive down. Uh, share your the problem is man, long form audio is hard. People get bored.
0: Oh, I know it is. It is, <laughs> it is yeah. You gotta have like, it's like a dedicated, I was just talking about this recently. It's like a dedicated audience that subscribes and listens to every episode. That's what you get. You, you, There's no virality with audio. It's not like yeah. if we have a great five-minute monologue, it can go viral because there's no really easy way to share it. It's like it's all or nothing. You either that's listen. That's what
2: they it were goes. telling the Gimlet Media guys to do instead. Yes. Make that product. Yeah. Yes. I still think someone should make that product. So, someone's
0: going to, right? and it's and it's going to blow the doors <laughs> off audio. It's going audio is going to go to the next level, but it's it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. Connor, this has been absolutely a blast. Thanks for taking the time, man.
2: Absolutely. I hope to talk to you soon, Isaac. All right. Later.
1: Bye. If you're a fan of the show and want to help others find the Isaac Morehouse podcast, make sure you go to iTunes and leave a rating or a review. One rating goes a long way towards others finding the show.